Support for the Exchange podcast from NHPR comes from UR subscribers and New Hampshire School Administrators Association, representing school superintendents and administrators, championing the education of children in our state every day since 1941. In today's ever-changing world, public education matters, and so does its leaders. Online at nhsaa.org. And from the New Hampshire Department of Agriculture, Markets, and Food. New Hampshire's farms and farmers markets are full of fresh goods, rich with agricultural heritage, and available all year long. You can locate pick-your-own farms, farmers markets, fairs, and more near you using the directories at visitnh.gov agriculture. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Canoy, and this is The Exchange. Measles was declared eliminated from the U.S. 20 years ago. That's because such high percentages of Americans were vaccinated that those few who were not were still safe because the disease just wasn't around. But in recent years, with growing numbers of people choosing not to vaccinate, outbreaks of measles are popping up again, including in 11 states this year, the most serious in Washington. So now many states are looking again at their vaccination rules and whether they should be less forgiving of residents who want to opt out. Today in the exchange, what vaccination looks like here in New Hampshire, both in policy and in practice, let's hear from you. Our email, exchange at nhpr.org. Your questions and comments and concerns about vaccination policy, if you vaccinate your children, if you do not vaccinate your children. Again, we want your thoughts. 1-800-892-6477. That email again, exchange at nhpr.org. You can respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. We have three health professionals with us in studio. Dr. Patricia Edwards is here, a physician at Concord Pediatrics, practicing for 33 years. She's a fellow at the American Academy of Pediatrics and also a member of the New Hampshire Vaccine Association. And Dr. Edwards, it's really nice to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Also with us, Kathy Barth, president of the New Hampshire School Nurses Association. She's also a school nurse at Crossroads Academy in Lyme. And Kathy, good to meet you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. And also with us, Dr. Ben Chan, the state epidemiologist at the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services. He's also an infectious disease physician. And Dr. Chan, a big welcome back. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for well, inviting us. all of you, and I want to start with you, Dr. Edwards. Um, what do you make of what is happening in these states? We've seen these outbreaks pop up. There was one in 2015. California, one in 2017, Minnesota. Now we see 11 states reporting these measles outbreaks, especially in Washington state, um, which has seen more than 50 cases this year. When you look at these headlines, Dr. Edwards, what goes through your mind? Well, I think this is one of the largest ones we've had in recent times, which is showing you that there is more and more lack of vaccination going on. And for us, we our practice believes very strongly in vaccination. Um, these are preventable diseases that have caused death and severe illness in the past. And in this century, there's no need to have this going on. <clears throat> Vaccine is widely available for a very low price, if not free, to patients. And I think a lot of it is the media and, you know, false news, as we hear all the time. And you can just look at Facebook on any day and find tons of memes and blogs and all kinds of things just telling you not to vaccinate your child. It isn't safe when we've seen this as safe and effective for decades. Are you um, angry, frustrated, exasperated? 
I How guess, are you feeling these days? I guess frustrated would be the best way to describe it. And I, very frustrated because it had seemed that we were making headway, at least in the state of New Hampshire. I was speaking with fewer and fewer people about vaccine fears, and now it seems to be rearing its ugly head again. And that's a a large problem, especially when doctors spend half an hour of a half an hour visit discussing why vaccines are safe and effective and should not be feared. Well, we'll talk about New Hampshire's numbers in just a moment. But um, Dr. Chen, I'm sure you've been watching the news. Clark County in Washington State is the epicenter of the outbreak there, where we know vaccinations are extremely low. And most of the measles cases we've seen have been unvaccinated kids under 10. The governor there, Jay Inslee, has declared a state of emergency. What goes through your mind when you hear about this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I think it's a very unfortunate situation because we know that uh, diseases like measles are entirely preventable. Um, we have a very uh, safe and effective vaccine, as uh, Dr. Edwards mentioned. And in fact, a couple of doses of this vaccine are upwards of 98% effective at preventing measles. Um, you know, back in 2000, uh, the the CDC uh, de- uh, declared the United States uh, free of measles transmission. So this was a disease that was, um, you know, not common, you know, uh, you know, one to two decades ago. Yeah, it's not that long ago, really. No. And, and in the last, you know, five, 10 years, we've really seen a resurgence of measles in this country, um, largely due to under-vaccination of some populations. You know, this year alone, there's been over 100 cases already reported to the CDC in the United States. That's only in the first, you know, month, month, uh, you know, five weeks of, of the year. You know, back in 2014, there were over 600 cases of measles in the United States. So this is coming back and largely due to under-vaccination of um, our, our kids and our population. Well, and Dr. Edwards alluded to this, but I'd love your <clears throat> thoughts too, Dr. Chan. Why do you think this is happening, this under-vaccination, that people don't believe the information that they get from sources like the Centers for Disease Control, uh, like their very own doctors? Yeah, I think there's a there are multiple factors involved here. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of this comes down to needing to have um, an in-depth discussion with um, a provider that a, a patient or a guardian trusts. Right? It's it's one thing for the federal government or the state government to say or recommend something. Um, it's entirely different to have you know a trusted pediatrician, a trusted family practice doctor um, have this discussion. Unfortunately, those discussions are time consuming. You know, there's a lot of questions and concerns that are out there. Um, but vaccine is still the best way to prevent um, many of these diseases. And I think um, one of the things that we can do at a state level from a policy perspective uh, is require these these vaccinations. Um, many of these states, I think, that have experienced an increase in um, diseases like measles uh, have um, exemptions, what we call philosophical exemptions, which I'm sure we'll be talking a little more about, uh, that allow parents and guardians to elect not to have their children vaccinated before entry into childcare or school. And um, our state and our legislature uh, has seen fit to try and um, err on the side of the of the best population protection possible. Well, and we'll definitely talk about New Hampshire policy, those religious exemptions, philosophical exemptions, which we don't have in this state, but we do have religious exemptions, and why uh, more people seem to be claiming those exemptions. But uh, I do want to bring you into our conversation to Kathy Barth, again, president of the New Hampshire School Nurses Association. What are you hearing from your fellow school nurses about this? Well, promotion of immunizations by uh, school nurses is central to the public focus of school nurse practice. Um, we are all in New Hampshire working hard to make sure that our students are immunized. There's a state law in New Hampshire, RSA 141C, that requires us at the beginning of the school year to do a full immunization review. The focus is usually on new students and kindergartners. 
And if students are missing immunizations, we send notification letters to parents. We work hard to get those immunizations in. I use that, I think frustration is a good word because at times parents are busy, they're working. Occasionally it's just a paperwork issue, but oftentimes it is parents who are holding back on immunizations. And um, nurses in New Hampshire are working really hard to um, to educate parents and inform them because we're up against the uh, highway of information that's that's online. And so we want to give accurate information and help to support what our pediatricians are doing in their health offices and reconnect students with their primary care physician to get immunizations that are missing. What's um, the policy, Kathy? If a child <clears throat> is not vaccinated, can you guys say you can't come to school? You're a risk to everybody else. Right. So the requirements for school is documentation of full immunization, required immunizations um, from the physician's office or from a prior school, um, valid or valid exemptions, or documentation of immunity. And documentation of immunity is only available to certain vaccines. Um, so we're really reviewing these records at the beginning of every school year to make sure those immunizations are on file. I have to ask you, and too. And oh, sorry, sorry, they yeah. can be excluded from school if these requirements aren't met. So you can say, I'm sorry, you can't come. Yes. It's too risky for everybody else. We can. Yes. What's the policy in your office, uh, Dr. Edwards? I'm sure you have, you know, people of all ages, uh, including little babies who haven't had their vaccines yet. Yes, we do. And I first need to say I'm not speaking as a representative of any of the groups I was listed as belonging to, although many of my opinions do go along with theirs. Um, one interesting thing that Dr. Chan said about a trusted doctor, nurse, somebody with experience talking to patients about their vaccination has been found not to be effective. And these were studies through the American Academy of Pediatrics. We really do fight the um, the the news out there and the myths and or the false things news. like that. Speaking of yes, someone involved the in the news business. News, <laughs> right, the false. I want to stop saying fake news, but it is. Anyway, um, we do not allow patients to be unvaccinated in our practice. So, so if we, someone's unvaccinated, they can't come see you. They have to leave our practice if they decide not to vaccinate. Now, that said, we will work with alternative methods in many ways. Like I may say, okay, if you want to get one shot when the baby's a month old and the next one when they're two months old and then the next one when they're three months old and we can get them fully vaccinated by two years old, I will work with you. But I recently had to have a patient be invited out of my practice because they refused to vaccinate their child. This puts the children in the waiting room at risk. I may have a child with cancer who can't be vaccinated right now, or despite vaccine, their immunity may be low and they could get, say, chickenpox despite having been vaccinated because this is a thing. It happens if they're sitting in the waiting room with a child who has it. There are other things. Everyone knows the Embril ads on TV for arthritis and such. There are children on these drugs, and their immune systems are not working well. So I can't take the risk that a child whose parents are doing everything to protect them can be sitting in the waiting room of my office with an unvaccinated child. It just it isn't fair. What's the reaction when you say to a family, I'm sorry, I can't let you be in my practice because you're putting everybody else in that waiting room at risk. Well, interestingly enough, this has been far more effective than me trying to dispel the myths and fears they have because they don't want to leave our practice for other reasons. And then they'll say, okay, we'll work with you. And once somebody 
has their child get that first set of vaccinations and sees how well the child does, a lot of the fears fall away. Let's go to our listeners. Lots of people sending in comments and on the phone. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. You can respond on Facebook or Twitter if you'd like. It's NHPR Exchange. And uh, Jen is calling in from Sullivan. Hi, Jen. Go ahead. You're on the air. Welcome. Jen, are you there? Okay, I hope you call back, Jen. Again, the number, 1-800-892-6477. And uh, here's someone who sent in a question who didn't want to give a name. I have a friend who's anti an anti-vaxxer with two young children. One of her fears is that the doctor would insert a microchip into the child. How do you address this? Because it's really so far out there. Um, thank you for the question. Dr. Chan, have you heard this fear before? Uh, you know, that's a that's a new one to me, although I have to say that um, I, I'm, I'm not a practicing pediatric physician, so uh, I, I don't oftentimes interact with parents around some of these um, uh, more unusual concerns. Um, but, you know, you know, I think it's it, when people have sort of set opinions on, on issues, and I think it's always hard to dispel um, some of these concerns. How do you recommend that um, nurses like Kathy, doctors like Dr. Edwards sort of bust through that? Well, you know, I think certainly there is there is a um, role for um, education, certainly education in, in the setting of a relationship. But as Dr. Edwards mentioned, that that can have limited effect. Um, and I think for that reason, we um, have uh, at a state level taken, you know, two sort of different approaches um, to vaccination. One is to make sure that vaccine is universally available to kids. And free. And, and free, yes. And that's and that's part of the program that we have at the state level. We're what's considered a universal vaccination state for kids, um, meaning that we get federal funding and we have funding from insurance companies that all that goes into a, a funding pool. And then we buy the, the pediatric vaccine um, at a state level at um, federal government list prices, meaning we get a substantial discount um, and are able to then move that vaccine out to all the pediatric and family practices. Uh, so there's no charge for vaccine in the state. Uh, there may be a charge for like an administration fee in the office, but the vaccine itself is free to all kids and adolescents. Well, and Rhonda asked us a question. Um, she says, what are the immunization rates in New Hampshire and how accurate are they? What are they, Dr. Chan? I've heard we've have pretty good immunization rates. Yes, we, we do have very good immunization rates. There's always room for improvement, um, but it, it depends partly on um, what vaccine you're talking about. You know, if you're talking about the overall childhood series, uh, which is, um, you know, we, we require nine or 10 different diseases um, for a child to be vaccinated against for entry into um, child, hair, child care, preschool, or, or, or kindergarten. Um, and if you look at that entire series, we're at about 80% um, or so of kids are vaccinated for the entire series, which is which is good. Obviously, there, there's room for good. improvement. I thought you needed more like 90, 95 yeah, well, for herd immunity. If you if you look at individual vaccines, you know we're we're better in, in some um, in some other areas. For example, the, the measles vaccine, um, I think upwards of 94 uh, plus percent of kids in our state are vaccinated. And I have heard that the rates, though, are going down slightly, Dr. Chan. Correct me if I'm wrong. So we're pretty good overall. But the 2017-2018 annual school immunization report shows 4,234 exemptions for religious reasons among New Hampshire students. And that's um, up from about 3,700 
two years earlier. So I just wonder what yeah, you so, think is going on there. So if you look at the um, the, the percentage of um, children enrolled in in private or public school, uh, you know the, the last the last few years it's been about um, two and a half percent. Um, so, you know, obviously we would like everybody to be vaccinated, but the reality is that not everybody will be vaccinated. Uh, we do have a medical exemption, meaning there are some children out there that for medical reasons can't get certain vaccines. Um, and so their healthcare providers, you know, sign off and they're able to enter school, childcare without getting the vaccine. Uh, it's all the more reason that everybody around them needs to be vaccinated, though, if, if a certain child is not protected against a disease. Um, you know, religious exemptions are higher. Those, those are on the order of two to two and a half percent of enrolled kids um, have a religious exemption. Um, you know, we don't keep a lot of uh, detailed information on what exactly those religious exemptions are, uh, but we do require um, parents to have notarized forms, you know, stating that they have a, relig a religious exemption to vaccines. So, you know, this is certainly um, higher rates of vaccine or, you know, lower exemption rates compared to other states that have uh, other categories like philosophical exemptions, um, meaning, you know, parents and guardians can opt out just because they don't want their kid to get a vaccine. We don't have that in New Hampshire. Um, for that reason, we have better rates of vaccine. Although it doesn't seem like for that religious exemption, you have to, you know, go through a lot. You have to have a notarized statement, but it's not, you don't have to, you know, bring your faith leader or whatever, um, bring in a long treatise on what that religious opposition is. So it seems like, anybody can jump in here, that the religious exemption is basically a philosophical exemption. Anybody want to jump on that? Well, Dr. Edwards? Being a practicing Catholic, I can bring up the MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella religious exemption. Um, apparently, many years ago, and Dr. Chan may address this better than I, um, the initial MMR was grown in aborted fetal cells. So that is true. I did look into that. That was um, many years ago. Many, many decades ago. And it wasn't a uh, miscarriage. It wasn't aborted fetal tissue. However, I also checked into the Catholic Church's stance on that because I had patients bringing this up. And our our Pope now has said that it is more important to be vaccinated against the measles than to worry about where the initial vaccine came from. Now, if the Pope can tell you that, I really think you should listen to him. I think he is a, the head of our religious organization, and his word should count for something. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Kathy, on this sort of, okay, we don't have a philosophical exemption, but really the religious exemption acts as a philosophical exemption? Right. I'm glad we don't have philosophical exemption. Um, parents do use the religious exemption, and all they need is the notary public stamp to submit it to school, and it does count. It feels like a bit of a loophole. Uh, we know who these children are. Um, and so I, like Dr. Edwards said, try to work with those parents to encourage them to understand why their children need to be vaccinated and maybe moving forward, not just put the exemption on file, but continue the education and help those parents to see the issues they need to think about moving forward as their kids are getting older. Coming up, a lot more of your questions and comments, so keep them coming in. Our email exchange at nhpr.org. Our phone number, 1-800-892-6477. More on vaccination policy and practice here in the Granite State in just a moment. This is The Exchange on NHPR.
When you give now to support the news you trust from NHPR, not only will you help to shorten the March Fun Drive, you'll also be entered to win an incredible trip to Anchorage, Alaska, where you can soar above the glaciers, stay up late to see the northern lights or the midnight sun. You'll also be entered to win our grand prize, a trip for two to Honolulu, Hawaii, courtesy of Milne Travel American Express. Give now to support the NHPR programs you love at nhpr.org. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today, with a rise in measles outbreaks in recent years, especially this year, we're looking again at vaccination policies and practice here in New Hampshire. And let's get your questions, comments, concerns in 1-800-892-6477. What questions do you have about this? What worries do you have, especially if you don't vaccinate your kids or you aren't vaccinated yourself? Our email, exchange at nhpr.org. You can always respond on Facebook or Twitter if you'd like. It's NHPR Exchange. One more time, that number, 1-800-892-6477. And Dr. Edwards, Dr. Chan, Kathy Barth, let's go right back to our listeners. And Elizabeth is in Tilton. Hi, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, well, what I, I guess what I would like, uh, I'm a nurse here in New Hampshire, and I've given tons of vaccines, and I've always believed in them. But what I've learned recently is that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, learned through FOIA request that uh, Health and Human Services ha- they've not been doing the uh, the uh, biannual uh, vaccine stat- safety studies that was mandated in 1988 by Ronald Reagan and Congress. And so, <clears throat> if those safety studies have not been done. I'm very worried about giving anybody anything. So I'm not going to vaccinate anyone any longer. Um, another thing is that you can't sue the vaccine manufacturer. That's the, you know, uh, that just takes their liability away. And so why would they make safer vaccines if you can't sue them? They're not, there's no liability. So, um, so Elizabeth, and, you're not going to vaccinate anybody anymore? You're still a practicing nurse? Yes, I will no longer ever do that. What I've learned uh, now is just in 1988, they started using human fetal uh, tissue, and uh, now you have skyrocketing rates of childhood cancer. Uh, The adjuvants now, like aluminum especially, and mercury, and mercury, yes, there is still mercury as thimerosal in multivial vaccines. The adjuvants, uh, such as aluminum, polysorbate 80, uh, are slowly being uh, shown to cause great harm to the brain. Well, Elizabeth, let's talk about some of those concerns because these are concerns that have come up. I've got some emails here, too, with some of the same concerns, so I really appreciate the call. I know everybody wants to jump in. Um, go ahead, Kathy, you first. I just want to answer as a nurse. Um, you know, safety, effectiveness, availability <clears throat> are of the FDA, CDC, and NIH. These are our best resources for uh, information in terms of vaccines. And everything we do in healthcare should be evidence-based, our decision-making around giving immunizations included. And you really need to look at your sources of information and really, you know, see where the testing and the vaccines um, for effectiveness and safety are being um, tested and taken care of. And the FDA and the CDC and the NIH are really our best resources. So FDA, Food and Drug Administration, CDC, yes. Centers for D- Disease Control, NIH, National Institutes of Health. I also did get an email, though, about this Freedom of Information request by RFK, um, finding that HHS didn't perform safety studies on vaccines. Vaccines Is that true, Dr. Chan? 
Yeah, I, I don't. I actually can't comment on that specific question or concern. I'm not familiar with that um, requirement, federal requirement, or even legislation. Um, but what I can say is that, uh, you know, as mentioned, we the the recommendations for vaccination are based on extensive study and review, not only of efficacy, um, but also on safety. So those safety studies have been done. Yes, that I, that accusation or concern is wrong. Yes, and in and in fact, uh, safety monitoring continues. There's a national. Um, uh, re- uh, reporting system that people can call concerns into or report concerns into about um, side effects or reactions to vaccines. Uh, and this is something that is continually um, monitored. So not only have the safety studies been done in the past, but um, safety continues to be monitored by uh, our federal partners like the you know FDA and the CDC. What about uh, Dr. Edwards, the concern that um, she raises? And I've heard this elsewhere, too, that um, the other uh, elements included in these vaccines, not the vaccine itself, but, you know, the components that are included in it um, might be harmful. I can't pronounce the thimerosal. Uh, thimerosal. Thimerosal. Thank is you. It's a type of mercury. And I often get these confused. I believe it's the ethyl mercury. <clears throat> And it's the methyl mercury that was the, and I might be wrong, <laughs> was the problem with brain development and brain issues that was found from people in a Japanese um, town that got too much mercury in the fish and had um, multiple neurological issues in their children. And mercury is a and neurotoxin. that's not right. And that's not the mercury that was ever in the vaccines to begin with. The vaccines we are using in our office are mercury-free. There isn't thimerosal in them. They aren't in multi-dose files. They're in single doses. So that is not a concern. Um, the amount of aluminum is such an infinitesimal amount, and it's to preserve the vaccine so bacteria don't get into the vaccine. And that would cause much more of a problem. And you are probably consuming more um, aluminum in the cooking pots that your mother gave you from your childhood. And so I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to worry more about the diseases that can kill your child. And um, also... I think I addressed the whole thing about the fetal cells, and to my knowledge, they are not a cause for increased cancer rates. I think we have many multifactorial reasons for increased cancer rates, and I think you can look at some of the junk food your children are eating, uh, you know, and other unhealthy things that are going on, the air pollution. Well, we've um, learned about chemicals in our drinking water. Exactly. So there's far more issues than the teeny, teeny amount you're going to get to preserve the vaccine. And as for not being able to sue people, I think we can look in Massachusetts at the issue that came up with the injected um, steroids into the spine and the bacteria that got into the people who had those injections and killed them. And we can see that there was quite a bit of um, recompense for that. Those people who have created that unsafe product have been sued and are going to jail. So, I mean, those concerns, to me, they're simply not valid. And when I'm looking at diseases that I saw kill children 30 years ago that are now vaccine-preventable, the Hib vaccine, Haemophilus influenza type B, not a flu, it's a bacteria, was a godsend to the world. I watched children who would have died. They don't even get these diseases today. How can... You not vaccinate your child against a deadly disease that I saw frequently as a resident. That so, gets me angry, I guess you could well, say. Well, <laughs> and Elizabeth said she's a nurse. So, Kathy, I'll ask you, um, as president of the School Nurses Association, would you guys, 
hire Elizabeth, someone who refuses to vaccinate? Well, we don't actually give the vaccinations in our health offices. And That's schools. right. You're checking we're, working, we're checking doctors and parents. Um, but I would certainly love to sit down with Elizabeth and talk about immunizations and um, remind her that um, providing immunity before children are exposed to life-threatening diseases is how we save lives. Um, if you look at the big picture, the evidence and the research shows that we've since we've started immunizations, you know, recently we've we've saved um, millions of lives, hundreds of thousands of cases of diseases, and over a trillion dollars in healthcare um, by having children immunized in the United States. Go ahead, Dr. Chen. Uh, I'll just also add to this um, from a from a uh, state or federal policy standpoint. There's a very rigorous process for how these vaccines get reviewed and recommended. Right? There's an, an advisory committee on immunization practices uh, that brings together experts um, that reviews the data around safety of these vaccines and efficacy of these vaccines, and then provides recommendations to the CDC, which you know adopts them. And 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 there is a system, as I mentioned before, in place for uh, ongoing monitoring of um, adverse reactions. There's a, a program through federal HHS, Health and Human Services, called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System um, that, you know, people can go online or call and, and report adverse events. And so this is something that is taken very seriously and is monitored uh, at a federal level. Well, so again, you mentioned the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, sort of the top echelons of the health institutions in this country. Why do you suppose a health professional like Elizabeth says, mm, that's not good enough, I'm still nervous and I don't trust it? Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, in this day and age, there's a lot of um, information accessible at our fingertips, you know, online. Um, and unfortunately, not all that information is necessarily true. And, and I think you have to be, when people are looking uh, and researching about vaccines, you have to be very careful of um, where the information is coming from and the sources of information and data that's out there may be misinterpreted. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, um, you, you know, uh, unclear or misinterpreted information and data out there. All right. Lots of emails and calls from our listeners. Here's an email from Lisa. When my previously happy baby spends the night crying from the pain of a shot or three and cries for days when her leg is touched, I can understand why some parents are reluctant to vaccinate it. Vaccinate. Lisa says, we do it for the diseases we consider too risky. Polio, MMR, Tdap, Hib. But we wait on others, Lisa says, like chickenpox until they need it for school. And we skip some, like rotavirus, completely. Lisa says, I think there are too many vaccines. Not every disease needs a vaccine. Dr. Edwards, what about that? We do hear from some people who say, well, I get most of them, but not all of them. Or I try and space them out because, um, I mean, I've been up with a crying baby, too, you know, on uh, who's gotten vaccinated. And it is, it is difficult. Lisa, thank you so much for jumping into our conversation. Well, a lot of the vaccines today have been, you might say, purified, um, such as the uh, DTAP, which um, has been the cellular component was taken out, which caused most of the fever and the sore leg and such as that. And we basically see far fewer um, problems like that. I used to get regular phone calls at night after children have been vaccinated, and I hardly do anymore. A little Tylenol can pretty much solve that problem. Um, and like I said before, we're willing to work with people who don't feel some vaccines are necessary for their child at that point in time. Um, one, one that's 
interesting along that lines is hepatitis A used to be considered more of a travel vaccine if you're going to Asia, South America, places like that where it's endemic. And recently we've seen along with the opioid crisis that we're now getting a spike in hepatitis A in the state of New Hampshire. And a few of those cases have been in people work in restaurants. It's a foodborne disease. So now I'm saying to people, you probably should consider getting that vaccine a little earlier for your child, where before we used to say, oh, if you're not traveling, okay, you can wait till they're older. HPV vaccine for genital warts comes up often. And the most interesting thing I have there is that a lot of the young people whose parents don't want to vaccinate them for HPV, which is genital warts, um, a lot of the children, when they turn 18, it's their choice, and most of them do receive it then. That's a tricky one. That comes yeah. up when uh, girls and now boys, boys are so. about 11 or 12. And it, right. is, it is challenging to have that conversation with your, you know, your 11-year-old who's still playing with Legos. You need to have this vaccine because you might end up having intercourse down the road and get sick from it. That's exactly. tough. I've been there <laughs> And you twice. probably could wait a year or two on that, I mean, yeah. if your child's not there yet. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Chan. Um, I, I just want to comment on the... Um, Callers' comments about selecting some vaccines and, and not yeah, others. Yeah, Lisa's and email. Sure, I, I think that that's actually reflected in the in the numbers that we have um, on childhood immunization. Uh, you, you know, so e- any individual vaccine, anywhere from eighty-eight to ninety percent, ninety-eight percent of people, um, or ninety-eight percent of children are vaccinated in New Hampshire. And and the ones that she mentioned, like polio and measles, are are higher. So like measles is ninety-four percent of children are vaccinated. Uh, polio is ninety-eight percent of children are vaccinated in New Hampshire. But when you look at it, and this was the 80% number I threw out earlier, when you look at it, you know, the the seven or so different vaccines combined, only about 80% of children have had all, um, you know, seven vaccines um, combined at, at, at the age when the survey was was done. And so I think that highlights this sort of potential selective picking of, of vaccines. You know, some vaccines have higher rates than others. Some parents are electing not to have certain vaccinations for their children. But there, there's a reason why um, all of these vaccines are part of the recommended childhood immunization schedule. And I think uh, we don't see some of the severe consequences of disease these days because of our healthcare system and the high, relatively high vaccination rates. Even something like chickenpox can lead to very serious um, disease. And so there's a reason that these vaccines are recommended. Well, it's interesting to hear Lisa um, raise that point because I think there are a fair number of parents who pick and choose what's more dangerous. So good to have you follow up on that. And I wonder, um, from your point, Kathy, as a school nurse, um, do most schools tell parents your kid has to have the full slate of vaccinations? Or are there sort of, you have to have A, B, C, D, but the others, we hope you do, but you don't have to? Right. So um, the Department of Health and Human Services under the RSA 141C that I told you about sends us a school immunization requirement schedule every fall. Requirements. You it's have to requirements have requirements for all of the up to, all the changes and what's required for that school year. Sometimes there's little shifts in the requirements, but it's pretty similar each year. And um, students are required to have all of these on file to come to school. Um, and like I said, if they don't have the uh, proper documentation from their physician's office, then um, they do have to have either a medical exemption, which is a, a letter from their physician explaining that they can't have that immunization for a certain period of time, um, or the religious exemption that you mentioned earlier. Um, and if they don't have the immunizations on file, we will send a notification letter saying this is what's missing. We need this in by a certain date. If we don't have this immunization by this date, then you may be excluded from school. 
Let's go to another call. This is Marcy and Keene. Hi, Marcy. Go ahead. You're in the air. Thanks for being with us. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. My question is, um, have any of the nurses or physicians, pediatricians, encountered parents whose child may have um, got sick and pox because they chose not to vaccinate or one of the other um, diseases that are preventable from vaccination and after their child may have gotten chicken pox, et cetera, um, saw a, a new light and chose, oh boy, I better va- start to vaccinate. Interesting. Marcy, thank you very much. Dr. Edwards, have you seen this where someone actually does get one of these diseases or their child does, as Marcy suggests, and then they go, oh, I guess I need to? Um because we really do exclude unvaccinated children now. Um, From your practice. Yeah, that's not such a problem. Although I did have a child once who was unvaccinated and got um, a rusty uh, screen scratch and had to have um, the immunoglobulin in the ER for tetanus and had to have some vaccination. And as I recall, that mother did then get the child up to date on the DTAP, but left our practice because I sent her to the ER to uh, hopefully save her child's life. But um, she was upset that he wound up getting vaccinated, but she went through with that. Go ahead, uh, Kathy. I haven't seen it in school, but um, I used to work in Boston in pediatrics at Children's Hospital on a medical unit. And we had babies admitted with pertussis. That was terrifying That's to watch. Whooping cough, right? Whooping cough, yeah. Wow. I've seen um, incidents of varicella, which is the chicken pox, where the children have terrible cellulitis. Um, and that cellulitis can spread, and that child can get infected in other areas of their body. And that also can be very, ter- very terrifying. Um, after working in hospitals and seeing these diseases in person, um, I feel really strongly that children should be immunized against these diseases. It's, it's one of the most important public health issues that um, we can encourage in our children and families. Here's an email from Jean in Exeter. Having had measles as a child, I was glad to learn that a vaccine could prevent this for my children. However, parents now have not had the experience of having measles or seeing the effects of this disease. And recently, several friends have had shingles, and now they are the biggest proponents of the shingles vaccine. Perhaps having some personal experience helps parents make the decision to accept vaccines for their families. Real quick, Dr. Edwards, I know you've talked about this, that, you know, given that measles was basically eradicated 20 years ago, a lot of people don't have experience with it, including doctors. Correct. And um, like I mentioned, the HIV vaccine is the best example I have of that because it became a vaccine in my lifetime. And my biggest fear is my partners who never saw this disease as physicians will miss it when a parent calls at night who's unvaccinated. That's my biggest concern, that we as doctors will not recognize these diseases. And well, your child may suffer Although with these outbreaks, from that. Um, we might see them, right? We They're might. seeing them in other states, which <laughs> is also not a good thing. But the first time we see them, we may not know what you have. All right. Thank you for that comment. A lot more of your comments after a short break. So stay with us. This is The Exchange on NHPR. Some say love is in the air, but maybe it's time to say goodbye to your old ride. 
If you've been wanting to break up with your car or truck, why not donate it to NHPR? We'll turn it into the programs you love, like Morning Edition, Fresh Air, and All Things Considered. Breaking up is really not hard to do. Just go to nhpr.org slash car donation. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Tomorrow on our show, a special broadcast, a live event in Nashua last week, on how that city's been tackling the opioid epidemic. That's tomorrow on The Exchange. This hour, we're looking at vaccines in policy and in practice here in New Hampshire, given a rise in measles outbreaks elsewhere in the country, measles being a disease that had been declared eradicated just 20 years ago. Let's hear from you. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. Again, exchange at nhpr.org. And uh, Kathy Barth, Dr. Chan, Dr. Edwards, before we go back to our listeners, I did want to ask you, given that we've seen these outbreaks in 11 states this year, um, and again, a big outbreak in Minnesota two years ago, another outbreak in California uh, four years ago. Some states are looking at their exemptions, the philosophical exemption and that religious exemption that we talked about earlier that people don't really need to, um, that the people can basically use as a philosophical exemption. I'm going to turn to you first, Dr. Edwards, because I know you thought a lot about this. Um, Should New Hampshire get rid of these exemptions, except obviously the health exemption. If someone has a compromised immune system, um, you're not going to make them have a vaccine. But religious, philosophical, get rid of all that. I don't feel that children in public schools should be allowed to not get vaccinated. Um, So I think there shouldn't be any exemptions for public schools. I think the alternative for those parents is homeschooling and, and staying away from people they might infect who wish to be safe by vaccines. And I think especially in daycares and preschools where young children are, that there shouldn't be any exemptions at all because that's not safe. Well, so if people homeschool and they say, okay, great, I'm homeschooling. I don't have to vaccinate because I'm following my own rules around that. Um, Those kids could still go to Disneyland. That's what happened in California. Um, so Correct. I just wonder what you think. Should New Hampshire get rid of this religious exemption? I think it's it's really hard. You're getting into civil rights, you know, the live free or die state. I can't always say that I can speak for everyone, but I think wherever we have the opportunity to say you must be vaccinated, you must be vaccinated. And like I say, if people are going to homeschool and not going to the public system, you can't you can't have police going out to their house and enforcing this, but anywhere in the public system, daycares, anything that's authorized, they should be, children should be vaccinated. What do you think, Kathy? Well, certainly a lot of homeschoolers are also immunized and they believe in immunization. Um, but even those who are homeschooled often like to participate part-time in the school system, whether it's after-school sports or attending school for certain subjects. And in order to do that, you do need to be immunized to come into the public and actually private school system. Public and private schools both follow the same uh, state immunization laws. Do you think, Kathy, given your long experience in children's health care, you worked at a hospital in Boston. Now you're the um, president of the Hampshire Nurses Association. Should New Hampshire get rid of these exemptions, um, except for obviously the health exemption? Right. I agree that that's a difficult question. It would certainly make the school nurse's job a lot easier when we're handed a notarization form from a parent and we have a sense that it's truly not for religious reasons. It can be very frustrating. 
Um, but again, I, I think it's a difficult issue because you have <clears throat> parents who feel very passionate about this and education is key. Um, helping parents understand the future of their children in the school system. Um, their children who are unimmunized, as Dr. Edwards indicated, are putting children who can't be immunized at risk. And really, they should be thinking about that. Um, as their children get older and want to go to college and want to go abroad, perhaps, for a semester or do something abroad for um, just a visit, um, that becomes an issue. They need to have even more immunizations than we require in the school systems just to be in school. Um, but the other piece that parents who um, don't immunize their children should think about is if there is a measles incident in school, for example, and their child hasn't had the measles vaccine, we'll be working with the health department to exclude their child from school for a certain amount of time. It could be from 7 to 25 days or so that they can't attend school because if they come down with the measles, then they'll be exposing the rest of the community. But they could still go to Target. They could still go to the they grocery could. store. They yes. could still go to, you know, Fun Zone or whatever it is. And right. um, I have colleagues, a lot of colleagues in the newsroom who have very young children who haven't been fully vaccinated yet because they're just so young. So how much at risk are those little kids, the babies and the toddlers who haven't had their full slate of vaccines, if they go to Fun Zone and there's some unvaccinated um, kids there who well, have Well, if they're on the immunization schedule and say they've just been partially immunized, immunized right. on schedule, I think, I believe they're protected. But the idea of getting full immunization is that there is waning immunity over time. And so you need to complete all vaccines in that series in order to have full protection okay. from a particular disease. Got to ask you this, Dr. Chan, then I have so many callers who want to jump in. Um, as you know, some states, um, including some around us in New Hampshire, are saying only medical exemptions. No more philosophical, no more religious. What do you think? Yeah, and I think that's a that's a, a tough question and one that I probably don't have a clear answer uh, for you on. You know, we, we don't we don't have philosophical exemptions in New Hampshire, and I agree with that. We should not have philosophical. But the religious exemptions. one seems to be functioning yep. just as a the philosophical the, the religious exemption. exemptions. And I think this goes back to you know we don't we don't know why people are having their notarized forms for religious exemptions, whether those are true religious exemptions or you know some of them likely are philosophical exemptions. Um, but, you know, I'm not an expert on religion, nor what the different religions are that may have valid religious exemptions. And I think there's a tension here between wanting to get as high vaccination rates in the state as possible, um, but still obviously leave room for religious freedom, which is an entirely different discussion. Um, and, and I think that there's some tension there, but I think we can all agree, um, the, the myself and the other you know speakers here, that, you know, the highest vaccine rate, the highest vaccination rate possible is, is best. Herd immunity. Yes. The more people who are vaccinated, the safer everyone is, even those who have not been vaccinated. Back to our listeners, and um, let's go next to John in Goffstown. Hi, John. You're on the air. Welcome, and thanks for calling the exchange. Well, thank you for having me on. And I am uh, I am a representative of Goffstown, a state rep. Okay, welcome. Yes, and I just want to make it clear that I will never vote for forced vaccinations in this state. But what my question is, is back when I was a child in the 60s, autism was almost unheard of. Today, autism is like one in 47 children with all of these vaccines. Now, the experts that are being paid by, you know, pharmaceuticals and others, you know, say that there is no link to that. 
in what I say is always follow the money. Well, Representative, um, we really appreciate your call, and we should hit this on the head. This originally, Dr. Edwards, was some of the cause for vaccine fears. Now there are other fears, too many, some of the substances included. This theory about vaccines causing autism has been widely, widely discredited, um, but it's still out there, and so I wonder what you think. Correct. Um, The, quote, study that brought all this to a head was by Andrew Wakefield. It was done in The Lancet, which is an English medical journal, where he studied a handful of children with autism and felt that it was linked to the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Interestingly enough, most of his lab work was done in a lab in California that he actually paid to get the results he wanted. So there Speaking you go. Speaking of follow the money. There you go, follow the money. And I recently heard that part of his interest in it was he was trying to develop his own measles vaccine. So he was trying to discredit the MMR that was already out there. Um, and I, I had a Oh, as for the rates of autism. When I was a young physician, again, you're looking back 30 some odd years ago, even a little more as residency, there were many children who had what we call PPD, pervasive developmental delay or pervasive something else delay, and all of these other diagnoses that today would be called autism or be on the autistic spectrum. So I do not believe that there is really a dramatic increase in autism. I have a feeling that a lot of the things that were in different categories of developmental delay are now thrown into the autism bucket. So we used to call it something else or we just disregard it and said, oh, that child is different. Right. And there's also some studies that are looking at advanced um, paternal age Especially on the father's side, right? right As that's older fathers father. have children. Right. Which more, is yeah. more common these days than when you look back into the 50s and the 60s when the fathers were often younger. So we don't know where that's going. That I've we also don't know read, yet. Um, Dr. Edwards, that now responding to this you know, vaccine fear, and, and I've heard it, John, so I appreciate you calling, um, that we can see signs of autism in the brain even when the child is still in the womb or even when the child is very, very young, pre-vaccine. Oh, yes. You can see the markers and the signs even before a kid is touched with a a needle. Yes, and there's some feeling that you can pick it up in the early months of life before they've ever come near the MMR, which was the one that they were blaming. All right, let's take another call. John, thank you for that one. Christine's in Derry. Hi, Christine, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi, Uh, thanks for taking the call. Sure. I I think I may be just reiterating some of these points, but I, um, I'm a pediatrician. I'm right now I'm staying home uh, with my kids, but uh, up to two years ago, I was in full-time practice. And I always make the point to parents that all the diseases we vaccinate against kill children, and they don't really understand that. And I can echo Dr. Edwards. I trained in maybe a few years later where Hib was preventable, but um, another type of bacteria strip pneumococcus was not and we had several children where I trained in Los Angeles with strep pneumococcus meningitis which was a huge became the most common meningitis at that time and I lived through having that decrease which was incredible to me and I can only imagine living through that his meningitis decrease was amazing as well um and we also took care of a lot of kids with pertussis and those babies tend to be less than two months old and they can't be vaccinated so they depend on the people and kids around them being vaccinated. And we had two children die of pertussis during my residency. And it was oh, it, wow. it's, it's heartbreaking. It's very difficult to understand 
that. And even with good vaccination, you know, infants can still get that because there is a pool of adults and, and uh, older kids that, that harbor pertussis without much illness. Um, and, and again, to echo, you know, chickenpox, um, we had kids in the ICU for many weeks with pneumonitis, which is, you know, inflammation of the lungs because of the virus itself. And the parents don't know that their children can die from a vaccine-preventable disease. And I think being frank with people can be helpful. And I'd be interested to look at that study that you quoted, Dr. Edwards, from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, well, Christine, what do I, you do? You said you're a pediatrician, right? Yeah. So what do you do in your practice when um, you have a family in your practice that does not uh, want to vaccinate? So I don't want to speak for the whole practice because I haven't been there in a few years. Okay. Um, but in the past, we um, documented that the parents declined vaccinations, and then we had a discussion. And I, I had only one family that refused over the course of several years, and everyone else, I continued the discussion. And eventually, we did agree on some schedule to get the children vaccinated. It's that trusted um, relationship that Dr. Chan talked about. Yeah, and I think those personal experiences for, for some families make a huge difference, um, there's one other example of a, a child with hip meningitis, and in Los Angeles, there was, there was one pediatric practice in particular that didn't vaccinate their children at all, and a lot of those kids from that practice came in one summer with hip meningitis, and a mom looked at me, she said, this could have been prevented with the vaccine, I said, yes, and she, you know, how could she not tear up? It was, um, you know, the child did well in the end, but Well, Christine, yeah, thank you for calling and sharing your experiences. And Dr. Chan, you look like you want to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, just I appreciate the um, the caller's comments. And just for the other listeners, HIB uh, is an abbreviation. It stands for Haemophilus influenza type B. Uh, It's a bacteria that we can vaccinate against. And and it actually used to be one of the leading causes of meningitis or central nervous system infection in children under five. or, you know, I welcome Dr. Edwards, you know, comments on this as well. Um, but, uh, you know, this these are infections that are potentially lethal, you know, pertussis as well. You know, many of these we don't see anymore either uh, because vaccine has been so effective, like as is, as is the case with Haemophilus influenza type B infection. Um, or they, they show up differently in, in adults. So, you know, pertussis or whooping cough, you know, in adults, usually not fatal, um, may cause a prolonged, you know, cough. But in, in kids, especially infants, uh, it can be fatal. You know, we, we've, you know, it's, it's rare and it's uncommon, thankfully, but we've had reports even in the last few years of um, children dying from pertussis. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for calling in, Christine. One more call if we could. This is Bob in Tamworth. Hi, Bob. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thanks for being with us. Hi there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that I feel like, you know, this is a multifaceted issue. There's lots of sides to it. And I feel like this morning your panel is giving us um, the the benefits of vaccines. Um, And I'm not denying that. But, you know, doesn't the federal government have a fund for compensating families that are damaged by vaccines? That's true. And have there been any really long-term randomized double-blind studies by any 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 companies uh, that aren't in this for profit um, to look at the long-term health effects uh, from vaccines? So I, I just feel like I've been hearing a rather unbalanced uh, picture this morning. I'm not denying the benefits, but let's all be clear that there are some risks, and we just haven't really heard about them today, and we don't tend to hear about them in the mainstream news. Bob, thank you so much for calling in. Do you want to jump in, Kathy? Um, I think the main point is that um, if there are any risks for vaccines, the benefits clearly outweigh these risks, and that's really what we should be focusing on. And again, there's a lot of information on the websites of the, of the CDC and the FDA if people have more questions 
you can go there and um, get more details and more information on specific vaccines. Well, and people have talked about, you know, um, are studies that say vaccines are important and safe and so forth, are they funded by the vaccine companies? That's come up at least twice. But you all have talked about, and I'll turn to you, Dr. Edwards, the research coming from the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control, not necessarily from, you know, a company that's selling a vaccine. So I just want to clear that up. Correct. And to my knowledge, the CDC and the NIH are not taking money from vaccine creators to do this. In fact, there have been some vaccine companies that had stopped um, producing vaccine, which led to some shortages in some past times due to the fact that they were not making a lot of money on these vaccines and, in fact, um, were getting multiple lawsuits that often they won, but still they were spending a lot of money to protect themselves. And so basically, I don't think there's a money trail that's making bad vaccines. Well, and we're trying to stick to the science here. (laughs) Right. And from the credible, deep, researched information by institutions that, um, you know, again, have widely been seen as based on the the science. The doctors of the CDC and the NIH do not want to harm children. They want to save lives. Well, all of you, we could have gone on a lot longer. And in fact, I've got a couple questions from listeners that maybe this is a future show, adult vaccines. We didn't have a chance to talk about that today because we were talking about these measles outbreaks and so forth. But we did get um, questions from adults about the shingles vaccine, I've gotten questions before about why isn't there a Lyme disease vaccine? And you and I have talked about that, Dr. Chan, so maybe that's a topic for another day. For now, I really appreciate you coming in. Kathy, um, thank you for coming all the way from Lyme. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. That's Kathy Barth, president of the School Nurses, the New Hampshire School Nurses Association and a school nurse herself at Crossroads Academy in Lyme. Dr. Edwards, great to see you. Thank you for being thank here. You. And Dr. Chan, thank you also for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. This is The Exchange on NHPR. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.